Greetings. Hi, this is Teresa Willard-Hughes, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. This is the second one of the series that we're doing on social injustice. So for today's podcast, I'm going to start out with a scenario. What would happen in the United States if every 73 seconds there was a murder or an attempted murder took place? That would be somewhere close to 1,160 crimes a day. Uh, murders or attempted murders. Let me be clear on this, and I think we all know what the truth would be. There would be hail on wheels to pay for that. There would be Congress would be holding all type of commissions and hearings like what the hell's gone wrong. Police chiefs' asses would be on the line. DA's offices would be overloaded. People would be wanting to fire you left and right. That is not to mention how many people's doors would be knocked down. How many guys would be thrown up against a wall and searched, searched looking for any form of evidence? Not to mention the no-knock warrants, people's houses, houses being busted into, somebody getting shot. If you want to add to this little scenario, let's add something else to it. The fact that there are well over 400,000 evidence kits are sitting on warehouse shelves at police departments, hospitals. Some of them have been there for 10, 11 years. And we all have watched enough CSI and law and order that we know all you got to do is have that evidence, that DNA, dun, 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 as you listen to on law and order. All of a sudden, you got the DNA and everything blows up at that place because you finally got some evidence. Well, what happens if nobody looks at those cases? So you got 400,000 DNA kits sitting on shelves and storage units, but nobody's listening. Then finally, if somehow, by some luck, by chance, they're, they're able to catch the perpetrator of these crimes, how the hell is he able to plead down to bargain? You're still either dead, as my grandmother used to say, you could be dead right or dead wrong, but your ass is still dead, or that you're severely injured trying to come back. From this assault. The perpetrator is able to plead Barton down like somehow your crime against you didn't really count. And then at the most they'll end up getting is what 5% of these guys will be incarcerated. That's what we happen in the United States. So we're not looking at a gun, a knife, a hammer, or whatever somebody would be using to kill you. What we're looking at is the most destructive weapon known to mankind, the weapon of mass destruction, a weaponized penis hell-bent on destroying women and children. And as a result of that, there's no commissions, there's no crimes, DNA kits are sitting on shelves, 1% to 5% incarceration rate, and we are being violated. Our bodies are not being protected. But somehow... Maybe it's because we're women, maybe because we're children, maybe because they view us as being powerless, voiceless, and vulnerable, and somehow it's our fault. Somehow we wore the wrong dress. Somehow that we looked at the guy, he caught us by the eye, and somehow we emoted some message, you can have me, you can have me, and as a result of it, he rapes you. Somehow along the way, he never understood the term no, meant don't do this anymore, oh, hell no, stop. Didn't understand the word stop. Did not matter to him. What mattered to him was that he was going to do his due. And we are going to be left laying on the side, on the ground, 
in a bed somewhere. And as he walks off, leaving us behind as if we were used toilet paper. And we have to figure out how to struggle and take care of ourselves. One of the things that I made the decision on for this podcast, programs where kids have been institutionalized, being in reform schools, being state-run operating houses, and even for those kids who decided and their parents thought, oh, this would be wonderful, I could send my kid to summer camp. We're going to talk about three different incidents of how this happens to kids and the lack of responsibility. And throughout this discussion, remember, there's certain terms that will constantly be heard. When the perpetrator is finally caught years later, regardless of how many crimes the person or perpetrator has done, somehow they pleaded down to, yes, there may have been 400, there may have been 200 kids that were violated. Oh, but we can only charge them with maybe five. Okay, so the other 200 plus kids that have been violated, what happens to them? Do their violation does not matter? It only matters to the court. Doesn't matter to us that we've been perpetrated. Doesn't matter to us that our body's been violated. Does not matter that we live with the shame and the blame of it all. They're only, the courts are only worried about what they could prosecute, what they might be able to get a conviction on. And we already know that conviction rate is one to five percent. So come on now. As young as seven to seventeen, were sent to these reform schools in New Hampshire. And there they were sent by the state so that the state could be able to protect and care for these kids who needed help. From 1963 to 2018, the finally cases really came on board. Come to find out that these kids over the years had been sexually violated multiple times by multiple so-called protectors. The predators were the guards and the security of the staff. Kids were held down and they were raped. Kids were violated and just raped left and right. They were beaten, yet the state operated this program. So now that they're bringing lawsuits, all of a sudden you're hearing these things about the guys who did it. Quote, unquote, they were family men. They held good jobs. They worked every day. Shit, of course they went to work every day. They could be able to rape people. Come on. But the term that is constantly used is not about the kids. The conversation is long past these kids who have been violated. The concentration now is on. He had a good job. He was a family man. I don't give a rat's ass about him being a family man or his job. But you and I, all of us have been raped. We've all heard about he was a good guy. You don't want to upset his job, his career path. That is what ended up happening. The violation of these children, these small kids, has gone on for years. And what we're now talking about, not their violation, but the guy, the predator, and that he was a family man. Let's stop describing these guys as as family men. Let's describe them who they are. They're sexual predators. Not a family man, but a sexual predator. There's another case that they ended up having where that it was a Christian reform school where boys and girls were sent to from Christian families. And, the, and, and they went to Missouri. Missouri is one of the two states in the country by which that the state has no authority at one point. They just apparently got it over the last year since all this hope law came about. 
that the state didn't even know how many kids were in these reform schools. Hell, they didn't even know where they were. They could just pop up. They didn't have to be licensed. They didn't have to be regulated. They didn't have to be seen. And so when it came out that these girls were being sexually violated, one and, and mind you, not one time that it, they came out. It went on for years, and they would pop up, and but, oh, because they're Christian school, we can't say anything about it. And one of the people that was operating the school, one of these reform schools, had the nerve to say, we can't trust these girls because they're master manipulators. Trust and believe the ultimate master manipulator is a sexual predator. They can lie, they can do whatever, and people believe them because we are taught to believe that a sexual predator looks a certain way. They don't. They're an average asshole Joe that walks the street. Sexual predators against children do not wear a damn trench coat and pull it open, this little pee-pee pops out. That's not what happens. 93% of us who know who have been sexually violated, we've known our predators. That is the God-honest truth. The other case was in Atlanta, and it just came out. That between 2016 and 2018, Five to 11-year-old children who had the opportunity, probably in their little minds and their families' minds, that they could go to a summer camp. How awesome would this be? How grateful the parents would be, like maybe two weeks free of the kids. I mean, I've raised kids. Every once in a while, going to send them to the camp is the greatest thing because you can finally have some peace in your house. And while they're at this camp, again, five to 11 years old, they were sexually violated. Again, what we're talking about is, oh, they were good family and people. The guy was in his 50s. He was a good guy. Somehow, perhaps he just got off the rails and he was sexually violating kids. No, he was a goddamn perpetrator. He was a sexual predator. That's who did it. But again, the conversation and the services and the help is not toward the children. It's about the guy who did the perpetrations. It's time that we start talking about them. There's a Pulitzer Prize writer, Arthur, by the name of Juan Jonette Diaz, J-U-N-O-T, Diaz. Famous writer, obviously, because he won a Pulitzer Prize. But he talked about, he wrote an essay in 2018 for the New, New York Magazine. And what he ended up saying was he talked about the trauma of an eight-year-old boy being sexually violated. He was raped at eight years old, not by a stranger, but by somebody who knew. And as a result of that, of course, he was Dominican. He did not get any help because he got lost in the shuffle. He didn't tell anybody because he was ashamed of it. The things that he talked about being raped are the things that I understand the majority of you who are listening to us about. You are pretty much defined as pre-raped and after-raped. Your life happened to you before you were raped. You got raped, raped on a continual basis, and then everything that happens to you afterwards. It's sort of like B.C., before Christ and after Christ. Well, this is before rape and after rape. You had a decent life maybe before rape. You were vulnerable. You were raped. And now everything that happens to you afterwards. And one of the things that he said that he had spent most of his life trying to run away and hide from being raped. He put on a mask that he was this good kid and things were going well. 
and their mass began to break. I understand that. Once I got raped, I put wore a mask. My mask was perfection. Other people used drugs. Other people used alcohol. People ate too much. They we did all kinds of crazy things to survive. And as a result of that, as we break down, as we get older, the cracks in our abilities to manage our, to survive. That's what goes wrong in our lives, and nobody talks about it. But then on the other hand, we have all these social workers and therapists and everybody, the so-called professionals. They say things to you, and you're supposed to believe it because, quote-unquote, they're professionals. You, on the other hand, is just a person who got harmed. You, on the other hand, is a person who's been victimized, and you ain't supposed to have great goddamn sense. I cannot tell you the number of therapists that I fired because I did it on pretty much of a regular basis. Once I had the nerve to say that I had been sexually violated, you wait. You wait. It's like that long pregnant wait. And you see how they look at you. You see the side eye. And then the next thing you see, if you've seen the therapist, they got trained in that therapist's voice. Oh, oh, I forgot. They have to tilt their head first. And then they go, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Are you okay? No, first thing you want to go is shut up. I don't like the side eye. don't like the tilting of the head. I hate the goddamn whiny voice. And you go, no. Oh, well, I'm sorry that you were a victim. I would say things like, no, I wasn't a victim. I was victimized. Ah, no, Teresa, you're a victim. I knew at 14 I wasn't a victim. I'm now in my 40s, if not close to 50, and you're going to tell me something I don't know? I don't think so, baby girl. I knew I was not a victim. Then somehow, to make me feel better, they would want me to become a survivor. If you're a black child, if you're a poor child, if you're from a marginalized community, if you have been sexually violated, you're part of a religious group that talks about your virginity, your culture says you're supposed to maintain your virginity, don't tell me about surviving because, baby girl, we didn't survive that. We know how to survive. We had no choice in life but to survive. What you haven't taught me, therapist, is I need to learn how to live. I need to figure out how to thrive. I need to learn how to handle this situation. Not dog paddle through life as a survivor and hope like hell some knucklehead sends me a life raft that's supposed to be saving my ass. The next thing you know, you're just with another asshole. Nobody ever talks about the fact that that's what this podcast is about is that when we look at being a survivor, we done done that. I don't need you to tell me how to do that. What I do need to have you understand is that by surviving, the things that we learned as children of how to be able to manage this abuse that we're enduring, the shame that's being perpetrated against us, the number of times that we've had to lie to protect the so-called good man that raped us, the number of times that we had to deny that it ever even possibly happened. When someone said, did it happen to you? We've been in school. Oh, no, it didn't happen to us. We have had to lie. We've had to deny it. And we had to defy that this same bastard that we're looking at ever harmed us. That's injustice. And when you look at it from all of those standpoints, I don't need you to tell me how to survive. I don't want to hear that I'm a victim. I need to learn how to thrive. I need to learn how to move forward. 
This podcast is here to say to you there's certain things. If you didn't gone through all that, baby girl, you already are strong. If you've gone through all that, you're powerful. And regardless of how you're standing, how you're leaning against the wall, how you may be crawling across the goddamn floor, you are victorious because you made it. You made it. You may not be where you want to be to make it, but you're here to be able to say that you've done it. This podcast and the series that we're developing that I hope many of you listen to, we're going to be doing it on YouTube so you can finally see what I look like in real life. But the reality is it's all about how we're going to make it and how we make it is how we talk to each other and how we build this community and how we use numbers because I'm an economist and I'm a strong believer in the power of a number. You tell me a number and people understand it. People understand every 73 seconds that someone is sexually violated. That's a goddamn crime. That is an awful figure. You someone say to me that if you, the conviction rate of after the hell I've gone through is only 1% to 5%, I'm pissed off. You understand those numbers. You understand the fact that if someone says, as I've reported before, that if you're sexually violated as a child and it's unresolved, you're going to lose $241,600 over your lifetime. That's a quarter of damn million dollars. Oh, baby girl, you do understand that. Because you can sit there and calculate, what all have I lost out? How is this going to impact my life and how is it going to impact my children's life? We understand certain things. But until it's presented to us in the way that I believe that we're doing on this podcast, that it becomes real, it becomes identifiable, and it comes to the fact that we are not alone. There's no change. We got to get out of this victim, survivor complex that people are throwing on us that holds us down. Last time I remember being a victim or a survivor is like getting slut put it into a boxes of lesser of lesser value. I'm not of lesser value. I have value. I refuse to allow you to slot me into those two characters. I'm 72 years old. I was born in 1948. I can remember very well the early civil rights movement. I remembered Emmett Till when I was a kid. I was seven, eight years old when I first saw his body in that casket with his mom. Allowed the whole world to see how his body was mutilated because of racism, because of bigotry. I remember at that age, I understood that my life had changed once I saw that picture. My life has changed once I began to talk. I began to change when I started talking to people about this program. I had done a lot of good social work, <clears throat> being on boards of directors, doing all the right things, but I wouldn't tell anybody about myself because I was too ashamed. I broke out of being ashamed. And it's amazing the number of people who are like me and like you. I think I told you that I did a totally unscientific, you know, survey, a questionnaire. My tag on my lift, my on my lift for my lift is called the sacrificial child. So when people pick me up, lift drivers pick me up, that's what they see. And they go, what's that? And I say, oh, I'm doing a program with childhood sexual life. Damn near every one of them. They crossed all races, all cultures, all religions. And they said, oh, it happened to me. It happened to my sister. It happened to my mama. It happened to my cousin. It happened to my uncle. 
every one of them seemed to know someone. So the one thing that I want to say, we ain't alone. There's an army of us out there. It's time that we unite. It's time for us to raise our voices. It's time for people in offices, politicians, especially legislators at the local level, at the state level, get their acts together and they hear from us. I don't want them telling me what I could do anymore. I don't want to listen to, oh, we only want to get the best case. Because guess what? Last time I remember, I'm the best case. If you rape me, don't tell me somebody else down the streets rape is high, as a higher priority than me. My body has been violated. My mind has been destroyed. My spirits have been broken. Don't talk to me about something where I could only use the best case. Right now, I'm looking at the base case. That's me. So I want to thank you now that I've got off my soapbox. I want to thank each of you for taking the time to listen to us. I want to thank each of you for being strong, powerful, and victorious. And I'll do two more podcasts. And then in June, I'll tell you when we're launching our YouTube channel. God, this is going to be scary. Uh, we'll launch our YouTube channel. And I hope that you join us on that as well. And I hope that you take the time to subscribe to us because what we're going to do, we're going to do four weeks, once a week. This is scary also. 15 to 20 minutes time schedules. And then on, that we'll ask a question. And the question may be as a sample of how many of you do know somebody who was sexually violated? And then you let us know. And then we'll get those over the course of the time. And then that fourth week, we'll ask people, We'll invite people to come on and talk to us about what happened to them. So it's a way of us building this community. So again, thank you, my dears. Thank you for everything that you've done. Thank you for listening to us. God bless you all. You take care of yourselves, and we'll talk soon. Take care. Teresa. Bye-bye, honey.